Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is a word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for the introduction, Pastor Fuji. I'm glad to preach again. Um, so let's get into the text. This is a fairly well-known story of these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their relationship with Jesus. And on the surface, it's a little bit disarming because it seems like this really sweet, like this really homey domestic scene. You know, they're sitting at Jesus's feet. I can sort of imagine this warm fireplace crackling you know, they're listening to his stories, and it's a really nice thing. But actually, if you understand the point, what this text is telling us is that Jesus will not accept anything short of complete and total commitment to him so that no half measures, no half-hearted devotion. That's what he's saying. But in reality, I think that for a great many American Christians, we're sort of going through the motions, and there's a kind of um, spiritual deadness that we've come to terms with, that we've sort of made our peace with. You know, we go to church on Sundays. Is that not enough? And the answer in our text is that we are missing out because the Bible calls us to this big life of faith, a life full of love and joy in the Lord, a life that is like pulsating and, and vibrating with spiritual vitality if only we will give ourselves wholly to him. So I have three points, and here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at Martha's busyness. Secondly, we're going to look at um, Mary's singular focus. And then finally, how do we change? Um, I'm going to give you a vision for the Christian life. So number one, Martha's busyness. So this is a really simple but profound story. And it focuses on these two sisters along uh, with their uh, brother, Lazarus, and they're all living together. And they're actually really close friends of Jesus. We, we actually have three separate stories of them in the Gospels, one here in Luke chapter 10, and then two in the Gospel of John. And in our story, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening intently to his teaching. But Martha, Martha is busy. She's working in the kitchen. And so the story is a character study in contrasts. And what I really love about the Bible is that 
It's so economical in giving us insight into their characters with just these few details. So in our story, when Jesus comes to visit, you see Martha immediately springs into action. She goes into the kitchen to prepare this really elaborate meal. And so we see that she's very decisive. She gets things done. She's a take charge kind of leader. And we also see that she's very practical. In John chapter 11, which is a a second story, when Jesus comes to Lazarus's tomb and he commands that the stone be rolled away, it's Martha who says to Jesus, but Lord, it smells. Are you sure you want to do this? And so you see that she's very outspoken. She speaks her mind. She's a no-nonsense kind of gal. And she's very competent. She's very responsible. You'll notice in the story that it's Martha who welcomes Jesus, the text says, to her house. Like, why is it her house? Why isn't it Mary's house? Why isn't it Lazarus's house? And the answer is, you see, it was Martha's house. She makes the decision, decisions. She pays the bills. She ran the household. And so it's very easy to admire her. I mean, you want Martha, at, you want to hire her for someone in your company. She's uber competent. She's this workhorse. She's this whirlwind of activity and, and busyness. But she's also very stressed. Jesus says uh, to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. The word anxious there means a fretful worrying. It means a fearful dread about the future. It's the same word Jesus uses when he says, do not be anxious about your life. And the word troubled here describes this emotional storm, this deep turmoil. And so the imagery is of this little ship being tossed around by this raging storm. That's Martha. And so why is Martha so troubled and anxious? Because on the surface, it looks like she has everything under control. She's, you know, accomplishing so much. But on the inside, things are falling apart. Things are falling to pieces, and there is no peace in her heart. I think that her story really resonates with so many of us. Our lives are so busy. We have these enormous to-do lists, and then at the end of the day, it really seems like we're actually worse off than when we first started. We're drowning. By the way, Jesus is not saying it's wrong to be busy. He's not saying it's wrong to have a full schedule. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was very busy. From morning until evening, he's bustling with activity. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that the apostles, that uh, Paul was in constant motion, constant ministry activity. So then what is Jesus saying? I think that he's saying the same thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Let me read it for you. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, 
saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Martha was busy with so many things in her life, but she had forgotten the one thing. And what Jesus is saying to Martha and what he's saying to all of us is underneath all of your busyness is a spiritual emptiness. The reason why you're so frantic is because you're seeking what only God can give you. Um, recently, I read uh, Matthew Perry's um, just-published memoir. It's a very uh, raw and honest story of his life. He's very open about his lifelong struggle with opioid addiction. And um, for those of you young people who don't know, Matthew Perry is the actor who played Chandler Bing in the TV show Friends. And in the book, he talks about how he was this struggling young actor in Los Angeles, and he's hustling, right? He's just going to one audition after the next, and he manages to land these really minor roles in a series of TV shows. He gets a few gigs to be on commercials, but he says that his greatest dream, what he wanted most of all, was to be famous because he thought that being famous would just swallow up all the emptiness and the loneliness of his life. He says that um, there was a, play, a point where he was so desperate that he got on his knees and he prayed. And he remembers this prayer so vividly. In fact, he, he refers back to this prayer several times in the book. And in the prayer, he says, God, you can do whatever you want in my life, just please make me famous. That's what he prayed. He calls it a Faustian prayer because three weeks later, he was cast on Friends. And it became this enormous cultural phenomenon. It was this huge runaway success. His face was on magazine covers. He was offered all these movie roles. He started dating a series of glamorous women. He became super famous, super famous. But he says he was miserable. He said there was this howling emptiness that could not be quieted. And starting in the second season, he began to self-medicate by taking painkillers. And so he would take Vicodin, he would take Oxycodone, he says, you know, he would be in and out of rehab, taking at various points in his life up to 55 Vicodin pills per day until he reached a point where he was hospitalized because his colon had exploded and he had to wear um, a coloscopy bag. And he writes this in his book. He says, I was clinging to the notions that something outside of me would fix me but I had had all that the world had to offer. Julia Roberts as my girlfriend. I had just bought my dream house that looks across the whole city. I'm making a million dollars a week. I win, right? 
I had it all, but it was all a trick. They just weren't the answer. There's a really um, profound place in his memoirs. He talks about this band of friends of um, struggling actors like himself. They're all waiting for their big break. They're all wanting desperately to be famous. And they would get together and they would drink and they would gossip and they would sort of swap uh, audition horror stories with each other. And in the group, his best friend, his best friend was a guy named Craig. And what happened is that Craig was actually offered the role of Chandler first. It was his. But he decided to turn it down because it was, for, it was an ensemble cast and simultaneously he had been offered the lead role in another sitcom which he really thought was gonna make it big. And so he turned down the Chandler role which opened it up and Matthew Perry then ended up landing the role of Chandler and then there was this huge you know, whirlwind of fame and success. In the meantime, his friend Craig's sitcom flopped, it was a complete failure, and then he uh, faded into obscurity. And then he says that in the aftermath, he and Craig ended up not speaking to each other for years because it was so painful until finally they met up. And he says it was like this really awkward conversation. And he so wanted to console his friend. And so this is what he wrote. He said, you know what, Craig? It doesn't do what we all thought it would. It doesn't fix anything. And he says that Craig stared at him just in complete disbelief. And then this is what he wrote. Matthew Perry says, I think actually you have to have all your dreams come true to realize they were the wrong dreams. You can spend your whole life chasing a dream. You can spend your whole life like imagining this perfect life where everything falls into place. And for most of us, we fall short of it. But there's a few people who actually achieve it, who actually get everything that they want. And then they're miserable because they're looking for salvation. They're looking to be exalted to this, to this lofty place, and then we say we'll be happy. But because it's not God, because it is only a finite created thing and not the creator, it will fail you. It will leave you empty and dissatisfied, and there will be no peace in your life. And you will find yourself upset and frustrated and grumpy and irritable all the time. In our passage, you can imagine Martha in the kitchen. And she is feeling overwhelmed. I mean, she is trying to put together this elaborate five-course meal. And she can imagine just how great it's going to be, but it's falling apart. And where is Mary? Mary has abandoned her. And she reaches this 
boiling point, right? And she's sort of like loudly banging the pots, right? She's like audibly sighing. She's like, <sighs> occasionally she pokes her head into the room and she's like giving Mary dagger eyes <laughs> until finally she can't take it anymore. And so she stomps into the room and she is so, she is furious because she has had it. And notice in the story, she doesn't yell at Mary, she yells at Jesus. She says, Lord, don't you care what's happening to me? Because ultimately, she's not mad at the people in her life or the circumstances. She's mad at God. She doesn't think God maybe loves her because otherwise he would give her what she needs. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you don't need all these things, you only need me. All your, your anxious busyness has crowded out your vision to see me. I'm right here. Martha, the one whom your soul is longing for, I'm, I'm sitting right here and you're missing out. That leads me to my Second point, Mary's singular focus. So in our story, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's listening intently to his teaching. Now, in the Bible, to sit at someone's feet is not just an adoring posture, but it's the position of a disciple. Uh, when Paul describes his former training, he, he describes himself as sitting at Gamaliel's feet. And so... To sit at someone's feet is not just to listen, but it's to study. It's to, to meditate on their teaching as a disciple. And here I want to make a very quick uh, secondary note because it would have been immediately noticeable to the original audience, which is I want you to see how astonishing, how shocking this story would have been read because you see Mary is a woman. In the ancient world, there were very clear lines of separation between men and women, and women were seen as second-class citizens uh, and not worth talking to. In uh, John chapter 4, when Jesus uh, encounters the Samaritan woman at the well, you'll remember the woman is astonished that he would speak with her. And so it would have been unimaginable for a rabbi to permit a woman to sit at his feet. And yet, this is what Jesus does. And it shows us that at every turn, Jesus elevated and honored women and treated them with dignity. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus included in his larger circle of disciples and followers several women. And then if you look at uh, the Gospels and if you also look at the book of Acts, you'll see that multiple, multiple women are cited by name, women like Priscilla, Lydia, Mary Magdalene, which shows you their prominence in the early church. And by comparison, consider the Quran, right? The Quran is written in a very similar cultural context, roughly the same time. And in the Quran, not a single woman 
is cited by name except Mary. And the only reason why Mary is mentioned is because she's the human mother of Jesus, and so she's you know, evidence of the fact that Jesus' claim to divinity is, is false, right? But otherwise, there are no women in the Quran which shows you that women weren't important in that culture. I want you to appreciate how radical this story was in the ancient world, that Jesus lifted up the status and dignity of women. But let me go back to the story. So Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet. And I want us to consider how extravagant and how wasteful, and maybe we could even say irresponsible this was, because Martha is trying to get things, she's trying to put a meal on the table. Whereas Mary is just sitting there, doing nothing, just listening to Jesus, and it seems really out of balance. I remember um, growing up, I became a, a Christian when I was a teenager, and my parents said, you know, that's good. It's going to give you some uh, good more." moral structure for your life, but I'll never forget what they said to me. They said, but don't get carried away. Don't get too extreme. You know, don't become a fanatic. Stay balanced. I think for so many of us, we are trying to live this balanced life. We want to achieve all of these goals. We want a successful career. We want financial stability. We want a good family. We want good health. We want an active social life. We want to pursue all our hobbies and interests, which, by the way, none of these things are bad. They're all good things, just like Martha's hospitality. You know, she's trying to prepare this amazing meal. Like, I want to go to Martha's house. <laughs> I want to eat her amazing meal. I want to enjoy her hospitality. And so we want all of these different things, and we want them in the proper balance, right? We want everything to be sort of in the proper proportions. And so we do want to follow Jesus, but not too much, not an excessive amount. We want everything to be in balance, so that Jesus and the things of God becomes a kind of like garnish on our plate. Not the main thing, but part of the ensemble, right? Not the main dish, but one of the side dishes. But Jesus won't let us do it. He says, you, you can't have me as the garnish on your plate. And what he says is, is startling and maybe even upsetting, but he says, I have to be the main course. I have to be the one necessary thing in your life, or you cannot have me at all. Because if you look at the end of verse 42, there's a play on words. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion. The word portion there actually refers to food. And so what Jesus is saying is, sitting at my feet is more important than food. It's more vital for your life than even eating. 
Now, please don't misunderstand me, you know, because some of you may be thinking, okay, so you want me to drop all my responsibilities, go up onto some mountain retreat and just pray and read the Bible? And the answer is no. What I'm talking about are your priorities. What is your bottom line? Everyone has one. What is the one non-negotiable in your life that you will not compromise with? What is the one driving passion in your life which orders everything else that you do? Is it Jesus? Is it loving him? Is it listening to him and obeying him and submitting your life to him no matter what it costs? And then everything else in your life has to just fit around that. I think for many of us, we're afraid. We're afraid to go all in with Jesus. And we don't want to give him control because we're not sure we can trust him. And this is why we're so busy, because we're trying to stay in control of our lives. We're trying not to lose the balance of our lives. I heard this um, really fun story from Tim Keller, and I, I like to give it to you as an illustration. It's a true story of Charles Blondin, who was this world-famous tightrope walker in the uh, mid-19th uh, mid century. And he was best known for his feat of crossing the Niagara Falls. And so what he did was he stretched out a rope 1,100 feet across, suspended 160 feet above the falls. Now, this had never been done before. And the first time that he attempted it, a crowd of 25,000 people gathered to watch it. And people were actually gambling whether or not he would plunge to his death. And the smart money is that he would. But he succeeded. He made it across, and he thrilled the crowds. So he and his manager, Harry Colcourt, said, this is great. And so they told the crowds, come back next week. We will do even more amazing stunts. And so each week, the crowds got bigger, and the stunts became even more spectacular. The next week, he walked, he walked across backwards. Then he did it blindfolded. Then he did it on stilts. Then he bicycled across. One time he carried a stove on his back, stopped midway, cooked an omelet, ate it, and then continued across. Every week, the stunts became more impossible, more death-defying. He did somersaults, he did backflips. One time he carried a chair with him, and then at the midway point, he set it down, balancing on the wire, he sat on it. Every week, the newspapers breathlessly carried the stories of his, of his feet. Um, the year that he did, 1858, he dominated the headlines. He was the biggest sensation in the nation. But eventually, he was running out of stunts. And so for the finale, he wanted to do the greatest stunt of all, he wanted to garner the biggest crowds that had ever been assembled. 
And so he and his manager came up with this idea that he would carry a man across on his back, which of course meant that now two lives are at stake. And so it would be really exciting. It would be this really big sensation. And so it was announced, Charles Blondin to carry man across Niagara Falls on his back. Everyone was excited. That week, the biggest crowds ever assembled. The, news, the newspapers estimated 100,000 people assembled for this final time. But first, they had to find someone willing to do it. And so they advertised in the newspapers, $1,000 to any man willing to come and to be carried across. And you know, back then, $1,000, that was an enormous sum of money. So a great number of people showed up. And so Blondin took them to the edge to show them, you know, the scale of what they were about to experience. And then to assure them that he could do it, he walked across with a 200-pound sack on his back. And then when he returned, he lined up all the people and he said, do you believe without any doubt that I can carry a man across on my back? And every single one of them, without exception, said, absolutely, you can do it. We all believe you. And so he said, okay, will you let me carry you across? And they all one by one said, not on your life, absolutely not, that's crazy. No one would do it. As you can imagine, this was a big problem. The crowds were assembled, 100,000 people, Everyone was waiting. And so Blondin turned to Harry, his manager, and he said, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to do it. Now, Harry was terrified. But to his credit, he agreed. And so he climbed up onto Blondin's back in a piggyback style. And you can actually find a photo of this exact moment on the internet. And then they started. And as Blondin started to walk across, Harry was so scared, they started to sway. And what happened is every time they would sway in one direction, Harry would try to counteract and sway in the other direction. And this was very bad. The newspapers, uh, according to newspaper accounts, it looked like they were about to fall. And so in that moment, Blondin shouted over the raging waters. And he basically said to Harry, he said, Harry, listen very carefully to me. He said, you must become part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you must rest completely in me and sway completely with me. Don't attempt to do any balancing yourself because if you do, we will both die. And so Blondin said, if you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself. If you try to save yourself at all, you have to rest completely in me. You have to trust in me completely. He said, Harry, let go of your life. Let go of your life. And Harry did. And they made it across. I want you to know that 
is what it means to be a Christian. It's to say to Jesus, I will trust in you completely. I will put my faith in you without any reservations. And I'm not going to try to preserve my own life. I'm not going to try to counterbalance or stay in control. I'm going to rest completely in your power and your goodness and your wisdom. And you know, unlike Blondin, who could have truly dropped Harry, who is, he's only human after all, Christ will never let you go. He will never drop you. And so you can trust him. He gave his life for you. That leads me to the third point. So how do our hearts change? How do we actually live this Christian life of following Christ? I want you to know that to make Jesus the one thing is not a matter of the will. It is a matter of the heart. Or to put it another way, the Christian life is not just a series of things that you must do, but it is a driving passage out of which everything else flows. So how do we get there? I told you that the Gospels, uh, there are three stories, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the third story, the final story, is in John chapter 12. This is right before uh, Jesus enters into Jerusalem for his final time. And he stops by Martha's house. And the text says that he's reclining at table. And Mary takes out a bottle of perfume. She anoints Jesus' feet. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, there are several things you need to know to understand the magnitude of this act. The first is that in the ancient world, um, perfume was a really precious commodity. Baths were difficult and infrequent, and so everyone smelled. Everyone had like gnarly B.O. So that on special occasions like wedding feasts, every guest would receive like a little dab of perfume on their breast, which would envelop them in this sweet aroma. And not only were perfumes um, really useful for social occasions, they were also incredibly expensive. Uh, John 12 tells us that the, uh, Mary's perfume was made of pure nard. Now, pure nard comes only in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in India. And so this was a very expensive perfume. And then secondly, Mary doesn't just dab perfume on Jesus. She pours it out on him. The text tells us that she broke open the jar and completely emptied out the contents. And in this story, Judas objects, and he says the, the perfume was worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarii is a day's wages, so 300 denarii is one year's income. We're talking about an enormous sum of money, maybe somewhere in the ballpark of $70,000. This was no doubt a family heirloom. This, was, this would have represented her entire life savings. And then she didn't put it on Jesus' head or his feet. She poured it out on his feet. You know, in the ancient world, everyone wore sandals, which would mean that um, on dusty roads, your feet was truly the meanest, dirtiest part of you. And she pours it on his feet, which just magnifies the honor. And then she wipes his feet, not with cloth, 
but with her own hair. For a woman, this was the most intimate, the most vulnerable, the most self-giving thing that you can do. And I want you to see in Mary's devotion here just the extravagance of it. The absolute, unreserved, complete devotion of it. And in the story, the people are like yelling at her. They're outraged. What are you doing? Where is your sense of proportion? And Jesus basically says, her sense of proportion is exactly correct. He says, leave her alone, for she did this in preparation for my burial. Now that's the key. You see, Mary knew better than anyone else in that room because she had been listening to him so intently that when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, this would be his final time, and he would lay down his life to save the world from its sins. Now, if that's true, if you acknowledge that, and, you're, and you say, eh, like, if you don't respond by saying, Lord, I submit my life to you, command me, whatever you will, then you're not in touch with reality. Because the only natural, rational, moral response to the sacrificial love of Jesus is to love him back, is to commit yourself to him unreservedly, without negotiation. If the gospel is true, its claim on your life is absolute and boundless. And so you cannot follow Jesus halfway. There's just no integrity to that. You cannot just give him part of your life. You can't just say, here are my Sundays, but the rest of the week is mine. You know, and I, I, I love the way J.I. Packer um, put in one of his books. He says, you can summarize the entire Christian life with a single verse, 1 Corinthians 6.20, which says, you have been bought with a price, therefore um, glorify God with your body. And what he's saying is this, if it's true that Jesus died this agonizing death on a Roman cross, to save you, to rescue you from death and judgment. If that's true, you owe him, you owe him your whole life. Your whole life. So how do we do that? What does that actually look like? And here, let me get really practical. And I want to provide two steps that you can take. The first step is to pray. Pray for a transformed heart. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Sincerely ask Jesus, help me to love you back. And surely he will give you spiritual life. The second step is I want to challenge you to take some kind of concrete step towards Jesus. And I want to be very careful here because I don't want to add to your to-do list like another list of activities. 
the Christian life is more than just doing things. It's ultimately about abiding in Jesus, communing with Jesus, but it's not less than activities. And in fact, the whole of your Christian life is really just an accumulation of a hundred little steps that you take, either towards him or away from him. So let me just provide some practical counsel. Number one, if you're not reading a devotional book, pick one up. Can I suggest J.I. Packer's Knowing God? Spend 10, 15 minutes a day reading a a good devotional book and your sense of wonder at the greatness of God will expand. Secondly, if you're not actively serving in church, volunteer. You know, sign up for something. And, And because the way our psychology works is that If you have a passive posture, if you sort of like lean back from church, your mind has to justify it. And so you will find yourself saying, well, I guess I don't really believe in any of this. And you will find your heart grow colder and colder. But if you lean in, if you get involved, even if you start cold, you will find your heart being warmed towards God and towards his people. And the final suggestion this might be a scary one, is if you have never talked to your coworker about Jesus, do it. I'm not saying, you know, indiscriminately hand out Bible tracts to all of your coworkers. That will not be well received. But go to your best friend at work, your, your closest friend, and you say to them, hey, you know I'm a Christian. What do you think about Jesus? And I guarantee you, it will be an amazing conversation. It will challenge you. It will strengthen your faith. Let me close with this final thought, which is, where does spiritual life come from? And the answer is, it comes from the gospel. It comes from seeing Jesus dying for you, saving you, loving you. And to the degree that that vision is clear and burns brightly in your heart and in your soul, to that degree, it will shape and structure your life. And then Jesus won't just be one more thing among the many things in your life. He will be the main thing, the one necessary thing, and everything else will be secondary. Let's pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge there is no middle ground. Either we are all in or all out. So that if we are lukewarm in our devotion and in our commitment, surely you will spit us out. And so grant us a life that submits to you without negotiation, without conditions. So that if you have so loved us by giving us your son, how can we not love you back by giving giving you our whole lives? Grant us the Holy Spirit that we may do so. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.